Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. It's been a while since we last recorded an episode and even longer since we recorded one that was focused on current events. Um, in the in the time since we last discussed something, you know, sort of uh, in the vein of news um, we've seen in this country and around the world, basically the entirety of the Omicron variant of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic and just a tremendous effect it's had on everything that happens in the United States and around the world. It's um, really changed what had been the narrative of steady, manageable decline in COVID cases. And instead, we've seen, you know, the highest case counts in the entirety of the pandemic. We've seen incredible numbers of people contracting COVID-19. And we're seeing, once again, hospitals, ICUs fill up with patients who have COVID-19 and are experiencing the symptoms of that. Naturally, I'm punching out, this is a story that is impacting workplaces everywhere. It's, you know, undoubtedly, if you're listening to the show, you know somebody who has missed work lately because they contracted COVID-19 and tested positive. It happened in my workplace. I'm, I'm sure it happened with the two of you. Yep. Here on Punching Out, we're going to focus on the workplace angle and how this new variant and the new, um, the just impossible contagiousness of it um, seems to be impacting workplaces. Um, where, it's an incredibly broad subject, I know, but where do we begin with that? Like, Well, I think we have to start with, um, Ryan, as you mentioned, it's that I guess if, if we're getting to the point of the little O here, we've got about 15 or 16 variants down, and we've never seen one this infectious. We thought Delta was as bad as it was going to get, and people warned that you know if you don't up vaccination rates, if you don't um, waive intellectual property rights uh, on the patents so that the vaccines can go out to the developing world and instead, you know, make Cuba and Venezuela and and, uh, other countries yet again do the work that the U.S. thinks it does, Um, then, you know, more variants were going to spring up. And lo and behold, they did. And now we've got uh, an extremely infectious variant that um, apparently rips through some level of vaccine protection, at least as far as contagion goes, and and, and that requires, you know, more adherence, more vigilance, when it comes to things like masking and social distancing. So as we've been saying, and I've been saying since the beginning of the pandemic, this is the US. So we were screwed from day one. The moment the Omicron variant was possible, we were done for. And of course, that meant that thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people were going to miss work. They were going to get sick. They were going to be in hospitals. Uh, There was, you know, society would have ground to a halt. So of course, our, our, Fearless leaders in the Biden administration 
everyone from press secretary Jim Psaki to uh, the the director of the CDC to Dr. Anthony Fauci, he of the ouchies, have all teamed up like a sort of healthcare anti-pandemic Avengers to make sure that we achieve the most important goal in the pandemic, which is make sure no one is out sick. Right. Um, probably the biggest change in public policy we have seen since this uh, outbreak began is the fact that the CDC is now uh, shortening the required length of time that people who test positive for COVID need to quarantine if they uh, you know, test positive. Um, it was 10 days. I believe it's now a week or five days. It, five days. Five days. Because, yeah. So exactly half the time, the CDC will tell you it's uh, about new science and, you know, new things we've learned about the Omicron variant in particular that make it less contagious after five days. I, I think there's a reasonable case that it also comes as basically every industry is seeing a shortage of workers, uh, not just before this variant, but also especially due to the variant and more and more people testing positive and having to miss work. So now they only miss five days instead of 10 days, one week instead of two weeks. And this is the way by which uh, the Biden administration is choosing to try and uh, plow through Omicron by just keeping people at work so that everything doesn't fall apart. Well, you say there's a reasonable case to be made. That reasonable case was made by Anthony Fauci, who openly said that the reason they went to the new quarantine rules was because they needed to make sure that nobody had too many people out at any given time. The government has been fairly open about the fact that this is about keeping people at work and that this is about, I mean... The, the Biden administration has been, despite the fact that it's been outrageously pro-business and pro-employer in all respects of the pandemic, what it also has been is taking it on the chin because the American business class cannot suffer the indignity of anybody telling them no. And so the few things that people like OSHA, more on that later, and uh, you know the, the, the CDC and the National Institutes of Health were asking businesses to do, that was too onerous. That was not permissible. So the Biden administration decided to, you know, give them a sop and and let them have this this five day quarantine, knowing, I think, full well that what that was going to do is, I mean, already employers were getting around the 10 day standard in all sorts of ways. Already they were forcing employees to report before their 10 days were up. We know this to be a fact, especially in industries that were suffering from staff shortages, that employers were taking advantage of the employees they had left, not by treating them better, which is what you would expect. That's what I'm always told economics demands, but no, by treating them worse, which is what capitalism and the American way of doing business demand. In the early stages of the pandemic and the uh, Biden administration, you saw uh, at least moderate amounts of effort on the part of governments to, you know, get the virus under control. You saw, obviously, the major shutdowns early in the pandemic, and um, especially in the winter of uh, last year, when, you know, we saw another big surge in cases, things got shut down, you know, public events were closed. Um, and it seems like sometime over this past summer, a lot of people decided that, okay, we're past that. And 
from there on, they decided that we're not going to do anything more to address the virus. We are not going to do anything to, uh, you know, possibly limit its spread. You know, obviously vaccines are available. Get a vaccine. That's what we'll tell people. And as far as actually reducing the spread of the virus, we're just not interested in doing that anymore. We've had enough of that. And regardless of how the facts change or how the virus changes, we're not going to mess around with trying to stop it. And so that approach ran into the um, new reality of Omicron and the fact that significantly more people were contracting the virus and it threatened, you know, worker shortages that, as I mentioned, even before the pandemic, companies were already complaining about for various reasons. Um, You know, really you're getting close to a breaking point of, you know, nobody having enough workers to actually do the things that they do. Um, Airlines were canceling flights. Obviously, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, in-person schooling during all of this. Um, That's something that we've decided we're going to try to discuss on a different episode um, because Noah simply has too much to say about that subject. Um, I wonder why. Why, why would I have so much to say about that? Who could possibly say? But uh, so, I mean, we were also seeing like uh, uh, famously photos of empty store shelves. And because of Omicron, you know, wiping out various portions of the supply chain, that nebulous thing that naturally we all understand. Um, you know, you're seeing more of those of late. Uh, there's a you know, Wegmans here in Brooklyn, where I now live, that I visited recently, and, you know, the whole meat section just kind of sparse, you know, it's a real thing that's happening. But all of this is to say that rather than, you know, shut down events or impose new restrictions to keep things under check so that we can continue to have the necessities of society, the administration has chosen to, um, loosen its rules so that we can continue to have the necessities of society with more people sick. Remember back in, you know, April, July of last year, and by last year, I mean 2020, when people were protesting and talking about how lockdowns and and all these restrictions were making it so that they can't survive. In retrospect, like very clearly, the government and everybody else in power has decided and made it to the point where, yeah, that was the worst outcome, not a million people dead, uh, which is likely even the official number at the end of this. Um, There's not going to be an end of this, but likely a million people dead in this country. That was the price worth paying so that we could continue to have our luxuries and small business owners could um, continue to abuse their employees and and everything else like it feels like everyone and everything gave up simultaneously as you were saying ryan it felt like after we had the summer everybody was basically being dragged kicking and screaming into the fall and winter knowing that there was going to be another surge in cases knowing that hospitals would be overloaded again knowing that people were going to die and as much as the you know the administration decided to do nothing about it and 
a lot of people, and I think we all know somebody who missed work due to COVID. We also all probably know multiple people who basically decided they didn't care anymore. It's a negative feedback loop because if you can get people not to care, then the administration is justified in doing less. And because they do less, more people decide not to care, which you see how this is going. Um, And one of the things that, I mean, nothing, there is no silver lining here. Nothing about this is encouraging. But uh, the one note I will make about school-related matters is that, of course, in the last week, we saw a bunch of work stoppages, not only by teachers, like there were in Chicago, but students in Oakland in uh in chicago in uh in 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 brooklyn in brooklyn where you live where that wegman is and some of these students you know demanded things for teachers they demanded apologies from uh lori lightfoot to the teachers union they demanded testing for school employees and things like that and having always seen the history of educational uh labor as something where it really only succeeds if it takes the concerns of everyone else into account. The fact that you've got children, teenagers, learning this lesson and using it to organize each other effectively is as close to a good note as we're going to get. But as you said, we're going to go into that in, in other episodes. That's just the one note that I think most directly relates because I think what you're battling the most is simply that a large portion of the American public, and they're not all right-wingers, um, or at least they don't think they are, largely stopped giving a damn the moment that the pan- the moment that they felt like the pandemic couldn't personally affect them. And the whole reason that we're going to be two years, three years, five years, 10 years, a century into this thing, and it will never quit, is that after the first couple months, rich people largely stopped dying of it. Because within the first couple months, and I don't know when the story of this is going to be told, and I don't want to sound too conspiratorial in segment one, but at some point we are going to find out that, you know, every experimental treatment available, everything that they could throw at the problem was available if you were above a certain income level within maybe a couple months of the pandemic starting. And that's why the rest of us were being charged to just do or die. For the rest of it. That's why the rest of us are being exposed to all of this danger. Because the people that have the most, the people that have the money to guard their lives as jealously as as jealously as they do, would rather they, they have no reason not to shove the rest of us into the meat grinder to keep them supplied. Like we have necessities of society. We have things that we need. We have needs for food and shelter and uh, you know, water and working electricity and things like that. We have, uh, uh, you know, even if you want to get more complicated than that, we need somebody to take out the garbage and we need somebody to eventually in some way, you know, remove snow from the public roads that we use and things like that. But for the rich, they need so much more than that. They need a labor infrastructure of hundreds, if not thousands of people devoted to servicing their every need on some level. And they decided that they didn't care if most of that was gone, if most of those people died as long as they could get replacements. And unfortunately, the Biden administration has made sure that they will be able to do that and that they will be able to get those replacements as quickly as possible. And that's why we're in the spot we are. I I think maybe the story of the last few months has been um, 
democratic leadership, democratic elected officials effectively embracing the strategy that uh, Donald Trump and his ilk would have had us under last April, you know, or gosh, two Aprils ago now um, at the start of the pandemic. Um, we have seen, you know, coded in some some form of progressive language or another pushes by uh, Democratic elected officials in New York State and New York City uh, to get people back into offices. Uh, not because there's, you know, any particular need for them to be there, but because the economy demands that people go to offices so that they can frequent uh, the Dunkin' Donuts along the way, um, as it was inartfully put by uh, Eric Adams, mayor of New York City. Um, Man, that guy sucks. He's the worst. I know it's uh, not the He's topic, corrupt in but... here. That should have been his slogan. There's a lot going on there. Um, yeah. But uh, you're seeing, so instead of the, the people who, you know, absolutely had to come to work being called essential workers anymore, you're seeing, you know, burdens being placed on them that aren't about just doing their job, but about doing their job without any concern for their well-being. There was a... Um, a a column by Adam Johnson, who was a writer and a pundit, um, he uh, tracked like how often the New York Times was using the term essential or frontline worker. And for most of the pandemic, this mirrored spikes in cases. Um, but during this current spike, we've instead seen a decline in the usage of that terminology to describe, uh, you know, the people facing the virus most closely, healthcare workers, you know, people who were called essential workers not that long ago. You know, the theory that he posits is that we're seeing, you know, on scales like that and in policy ways, just a shift away from the idea that those people deserve anything, that they deserve, you know, our adulation, uh, that they deserve the rest of us taking steps in order to keep them safe, or that they deserve, you know, additional financial compensation for being the ones taking the risk to keep society running. Yeah. And that's got to be not just the pandemic talking, but that's got to be partly a response to the strikes and everything else happening. Like if you're going to call me an essential worker for, for two years, then I deserve pay. I deserve rights. I deserve uh, a good life. I don't deserve to be mistreated and abused. And now that these are the folks who are dying again and not able to work because they don't really have a choice to work at home. Um, now we need to remind them that they're just once again, not good enough. What did your, your lovely mayor say about the uh, Dunkin' Donuts workers? They just don't have the skills to work from offices. And they need to know their place. And that's what is so infuriating about this entire thing. Like not unexpected at all, but it is a, it is the powers that be crushing us under their thumbs for daring to suggest that we don't deserve to die and that we deserve life. And they're using all of their powers at their disposal, cutting benefits, cutting sick time, cutting uh, required quarantine to keep everyone else healthy. 
um, to just shove us back there because we're. It is particularly funny to hear Eric Adams say that about uh, low skill workers when Eric Adams was famously a cop. And as we've seen over the past uh, 10 years now, 20 years now, the only real skill you need to become a cop is uh, which end of the truncheon do you swing at somebody else? Everything else, the military and, you know, the Israeli defense forces will, they'll tell you what to do. I don't think most of us accept the state of things as they are. You know, I think across political boundaries, if you're not part of the 1%, if you are not making money off of this pandemic, basically, you are almost guaranteed to be losing money, whether you're in any income tranche, uh, in any any step of the, the the social ladder. And I think most of us are not accepting of the status quo. We We don't like what is happening, even if we don't admit it. But the problem is that there's almost there's a desire to not talk about it because understandably the pandemic has dominated everything that we think and talk about for the past two years. And there's a lot of people who are just straight up tired of it. And they think I want to go back to living my life. They know that their mismanagement of the pandemic creates the possibility for people to envision something better, something beyond what was there before? Because what was there before sucked for almost all of us as it was. But we were willing, a lot of us were willing to put up with it because the uh, either out of fear of things getting worse or because we didn't believe that things could ever get better. We only thought that they would stay the same. Or, you know, for many people, because the shelves were always stocked. You know, I, I, I yes. think <laughs> to some extent, like, there's a concern that the thing that w w threatens, you know, an administration's power or its popularity isn't the death toll. It is whether middle class, upper middle class people can get all the treats that they like at the local grocery store. Because those images spook the people in power more than, you know, the images of overflowing hospitals because... Ultimately, yeah. the workers there, you know, they don't have power. Because then whenever the next time they try to red scare, we'll have to say that's that that's the image they use every time they try to red scare. So anyways, Noah. No, I, I think that's dead on. Um, although I would say that comrade Gene Allen, who has been on this podcast before, pointed out that the thing about it, because, you know, Bloomberg had that article about Maybe Americans should learn to live more like Europeans and accept scarcity and things like that. And as Gene pointed out, you can say that, but the fact is that the American dream has been reduced to nothing but treats on demand because we're not getting healthcare, we're not getting education, we're not getting anything like a, a, a worthy retirement, we're not getting real social safety nets, we're not getting public utilities, we're not getting banks that are on our side, we're not getting anything. The one thing we get is the shelves being stocked, and now that's being taken away. And an increasing variety of delivery apps. They, they're they mutating like they have variants, too. Treats on demand is a very good way to put it, because there are now snack food delivery apps. I think that's as good a place to leave this segment as we're going to find. Um, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back, and we're going to talk about... Um, 
you know, something that happened this past week that is very much related to all of this. Um, we'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. We discussed in the first segment the myriad ways in which uh, Omicron is affecting um, workplaces around the country and um, just the new stresses that are being placed on both workers everywhere and and the politicians charged with responding to the virus. Um, In many cases, they have simply decided that they're not going to respond anymore. They're not going to do anything to help address this or to or that could possibly keep people away from workplaces. Um, the strategy from the top on down is to do everything that's possible to keep people in workplaces, in physical workplaces where necessary, uh, so that the economy can keep running and store shelves can be stocked once again. Regardless of you know what the virus threatens to do to the workers in the way of that happening. The one thing that um, the Biden administration has really taken on as its main effort towards responding to COVID is vaccination. They have adopted a strategy of telling and otherwise mandating vaccination as their way of getting through the pandemic. The idea being that if everybody gets vaccinated you know, the risks of contracting COVID are reduced significantly through vaccination. And if enough people do that, then we'll be on the other side of this pandemic. And we can do all of the things that a society needs and wants to do without the risks that came about during the pandemic. Omicron very much threw a wrench in those plans because, as we discussed, it you know, spreads more easily, it spreads more rapidly. And if you aren't boosted, in addition to having your your first two shots of the vaccine, you know, you can, you're still at some moderate risk from the, uh, you know, the variant, you know, you'll have some significant health issues stemming from that. Um, And we've seen hospitals once again, fill up during this um, variant. Another thing throwing a wrench in uh, the Biden administration's plans on this front is the Supreme Court, which uh, this past week ruled that uh, its um, OSHA mandate, uh, effectively giving the uh, OSHA the authority to impose a vaccine mandate on employers who have more than 100 workers or more, um, was unconstitutional. Um, This is the ruling of six members of the Supreme Court who decided that COVID-19 really just isn't a workplace safety issue. It's uh, not something that could be called under OSHA's broad authority to address workplace safety issues. This is the logic of the Supreme Court in striking this mandate down. And now, once again, the mandate is not in place and there's no such requirement for vaccination, which 
Do, do the two of you have thoughts on that? Uh, do I have thoughts on the ring wraiths? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. Um, the first thing I want to note, and I'm sure we're going to get lawyered over this because, well, we know several lawyers who listen to this show, but it was uh, a per curiam decision. I think I'm pronouncing that incorrect American legal Latin, but what that means is basically that it was um, it was authored, quote unquote, through the court or by the court. So there's no name on the decision, even though we know that it was a six to three thing. Now, friend of the show, Neil Gorsuch, put his name on a concurrence with the decision and the liberal justices, I think, uh, well, Sotomayor, Kagan and Breyer, all dissented and they wrote a dissent in which they put their names on it. And. I'm sure this is where we're going to get criticism. But the first thing I want to point out is that reading the decision, it seemed fairly obvious that it was written by that complete dullard of a chief justice that we have, John Roberts. And the fact that it's a per curiam decision is mostly his cowardice. Because we know that John Roberts goes to sleep every night, knowing in his nightmares that he will be remembered as one of the worst chief justices in the history of the United States. Like Roger Tawney level bad. And as a result, he did not want to put his name on a decision that he knows can can get him the blame morally, not even legally, because he's never going to be prosecuted for this. The man attempted a coup d'etat, a successful coup d'etat, actually. And, you know, he's the chief justice of the Supreme Court. In, in 2000, he was part of the Brooks Brothers riot that the George W. Bush, not even administration yet, pulled off. So... It really annoys me that even in this moment where he knows he's won and he has all the power because the Biden administration has flatly refused to do anything about having a Supreme Court that is just a massive bailout for the right wing anytime they don't like anything in this country, um, that he still felt the need to keep his name off of that. Not that I often actually say good things about Neil Gorsuch, and I still won't but at least he was willing to actually put his name on this as agreeing to it individually because he doesn't think he'll face any consequences for it. And we live in a coward society that won't make him face any, but at least he, you know, put his name on it. And let's be real clear at the same time as they decided this Roberts and Kavanaugh joined the liberal justices in another decision where if you are a federally funded healthcare facility, you are in fact allowed to be placed under a vaccine mandate. And the reason for that, I have to imagine, is that we know Brett Kavanaugh's financial health is precarious at the best of times, and he might end up in hospital and, you know, he might not have enough because his uh, rich Nats season ticket holder friends might not be able to give him enough money to cover the concierge services. So he might be at the mercy of a normal hospital, and he wants to make sure that he's protected in case that happens, because we do know that hospitals are making people go into work sick. We know that that's happening. We know that nurses are participating in labor actions over it. Um, anyway, other than that, uh, what else is new? The Supreme Court has completely abdicated any responsibility it had to do anything other than serve the interests of Sauron. I mean, the powerful. Uh, it, it's been noted that the Supreme Court is operating remotely during uh, all of this. And they made this decision to, uh, you know, declare vaccine mandates unconstitutional against prior precedent for uh, vaccine mandates. Uh, we, there, you know, there's a famous case involving the state of Massachusetts that uh, set precedent that said 
yeah, you can require, uh, you know, vaccines for public schools, for example. Um, at any rate, they, they made all this decision from the safety of a Zoom call. Um, Clarence Thomas probably had the Zoom screen off so he could sleep during oral arguments again. <laughs> um, and the logic ostensibly that uh, respectable conservatives will tell, have you believe about this decision is that it was not, you know, just a craven anti-vaccine, uh, you know, chuttery. It wasn't uh, something that was specifically against vaccines. It was about the method in which this mandate was imposed. It was about this mandate be- coming from an executive order by the Biden administration. And had they simply passed it through legislation, everything would be hunky-dory. Nobody would possibly push back against it. Wait, now I'm thinking Gorsuch wrote this because that's his trick. That's his thing. It's like, I'm sorry I, as a judge, have the power to decide on this question. Maybe the legislature should step in and make me do my job properly. Right. That's his Robert rhetorical likes move. to do that, too. True. But the, the big thing I actually wanted to break in on is, and, and I forgot to mention this, and, and then I will be quiet for a while, I promise. But it's that they're saying this about an, or, about an executive agency that doesn't have the power to do its job. OSHA cannot cannot by any realistic stretch of the imagination inspect every workplace for anything let alone how many needles went in how many arms so there is no way this is going to be properly enforceable anyway because there are no jackbooted osha thugs knocking down doors and you know demanding compliance so they were doing they knew that this was at the most a symbolic measure and they still weren't even willing to do that much you know they still weren't even willing to allow that Right. Um, there's obviously much to be said about the nature of uh, jurisprudence posing as just an objective reading of the law that nobody could find fault with when, you know, we had three dissenting judges on this decision. You know, there, there's clearly some disagreement there among lawyers and legal types. But ultimately, what this speaks to is really a failure of governance. I mean, if you take the uh, judges at their word that this would have been fine if you just passed it by, you know, through legislation. Well, it raises the question of why didn't Democrats do that? Why didn't they pass this through Congress? Which, you know, brings up a whole question of the nature of our government and how it gets things done, or more pointedly, doesn't get things done. Uh, the, the fact is that there wasn't enough support among Democratic senators to either pass this uh, via majority vote or to get rid of the filibuster to do so. And so the Biden administration is st- stuck in this sort of limbo where they can't actually pass this by legislation. And the Supreme Court is telling them that that's the only way that will be allowed. And surely the Supreme Court justices are aware of this bind. Justices, you know, might not even bother if they thought there was a chance that Democrats in Congress would pass this legislation to impose this vaccine mandate. But, you know, the nature of our government is such that, you know, two senators out of 100 can really throw a wrench in anything being done on this matter. It's just really important to remember and not to discourage people, but you just need to vote harder because that's how we're really going to change things.
that's Vote how we're blue, finally no gonna matter who this. that's right yeah yeah that that'll get that'll get amy coney barrett and alito and roberts and the rest of these ghouls out of office no i think i think that's absolutely correct the and and the thing is that this supreme court i mean not with all of its current members but the roberts court is also directly responsible for why electoral politics in this country is a joke it's you know citizens united happened under this court uh, the Voting Rights Act was gutted under this court. John Roberts has as his project, as his judicial project, because this is a man who has a 55% approval rating among Democrats from whom he stole an election. This man's judicial project is to have a white supremacist United States. This is what he wants. A United States in which property owners who are going to be proportionally white and male, disproportionately, pardon me, white and male, to be the ones who have even more power than they do right now. That is what his entire stance or stay on the court has been about. And this is just another little, you know, brick, another little piece of mortar laid to make that project happen. And until we stop pretending that the Supreme Court is a non-political institution or that those people should not be treated like politicians, partisan politicians, which they are and which Americans profess to hate in every other circumstance, there's going to be no progress on this issue. The fact that you can say horrible things about your congressperson or senator in a way that you can't about a Supreme Court justice, even though that is beginning to change, that is beginning to shift, but the fact that you can't really do that in the same way is kind of a problem. It, we're in 2022. A lot of institutions need to go. A lot of things need to change. We need to have an actual imagination about what the future of this country looks like. And the fact that we don't is what enables people like Roberts and Gorsuch, people like, you know, all of these Republican governors who are instituting work requirements for this and that, um, to people like business owners and rich, you know, millionaire, whatever insult I can actually put here without violating FCC rules, uh, to do whatever they want. Because we continue on some level to accept it. I, not to harp on this point, but it's worth considering, you know, how this gets here, how how we get to a point where the Supreme Court is nixing a vaccine mandate because it was done through the executive branch. You know, this is a country in which the last couple of elections have been won by Democrats, you know, that at the national level, you know. In 2018, Democrats took back the House. In 2020, they took the presidency and the Senate. They control the legislative and executive branches. And by all accounts, vaccine mandates are popular. They, you know, a majority of the public is vaccinated and wants to see more people get vaccinated. Um, you know, when polling was done, as the Biden administration foot first put this mandate into place, they found that it was 55 to 60% of the public was in favor of this move, even though it, you know, was decried on the right as, you know, an unfair imposition upon, you know, private employers, you know, there was sort of a popular wisdom that these vaccine mandates would be unpopular, but actual, you know, actually looking into what public opinion was showed that no, the public was fine with it. Uh, and despite that, this mandate, can't happen. It, you know, it just completely fizzles out because of the nature of uh, the United States government, which has a Senate in which states are given equal 
power dis- regardless of their population. So that's why there's a 50-50 split in that branch when you know the public is not 50-50 and the people who vote on senators are not 50-50. Um, we have a Supreme Court that is appointed largely by uh, presidents who lost the popular vote but won the Electoral College. We have uh, you know, a constitution that requires super majorities in some regards and um, of, of the filibuster rule that uh, is made up out of thin air, but also p- imposes a super majority requ- requirement to really do anything about any of these structures. And so nothing can get done on something that the public wants. Uh, Mitt Romney had a quote this past week uh, in defense of the filibuster, which in its current usage means that anything the Senate wants to pass either needs to go through this special process called reconciliation that has carve outs and legalese that we don't need to get into. Um, or it must first get a 60 vote uh, super majority support in order to do so. Uh, Romney's uh, defense of the filibuster, which throughout history has largely been used by, you know, slave owners and those defending segregation, uh, was to say that if we got rid of it, then, you know, every election, when people entered power, when people voted for a new Senate, that Senate would be able to do things on the basis of, you know, the people who supported them. And we simply could not have that. We simply could not have a society in which elections could change policy. That. Who ever heard of such a thing? Well, and this week, too, there was an article, and Noah's going to have to find it for me because I cannot, uh, about the fact that public policy or public opinion doesn't seem to have any relation to public policy. In fact, just a quick Google search of this, this article isn't popping up for me. Um, But what is, is a bunch of scholarly articles from the past 20 years saying, oh yeah, public policy uh, and public opinion. Yeah, public opinion can sway public policy and it really can't. And we're, we're seeing this because every single stage of this pandemic, it's been the majority of people support having remote schooling, but we didn't do it. The majority of people support a good lockdown with actual uh, financial support for people who are out of work, but we didn't do it. And every single step of the way we've had versions of that. And I think that's true across the board, not just in in terms of the pandemic. Like we don't live in a democracy. We live in some kind of strange oligarchy where a bunch of people who can make money off of us suffering are making all the policy choices. And that goes for our politicians and our Supreme Court uh, ring wraiths. And it goes for uh, everything else like that. So yeah, you're. It makes sense that that no, nothing good would happen, because uh, the sensible thing can't happen. It seems. It, it, isn't that just wonderful? <laughs> so great. Um, Love to live in the world's freest country, and the best democracy on the planet. Right. What? Where we can just, if we vote hard enough, good things will happen again. <laughs> What we've seen on this issue and on several others is that uh, the loudest people in society have been able to impose their will upon the rest of us. Uh, 
you know, first with the lockdowns at the early stages of the pandemic, we saw the, uh, you know, manufactured uh, protests surrounding that, that, you know, eventually swung right-wing governors and red state legislatures to open up society um, for everything goes as far as the pandemic goes. Um, And, you know, if you're somebody who actually was content with the lockdown, was content working remotely, was content uh, wearing masks in public places and wanted to stay safe from the pandemic, you didn't really have that option in many states. Um, And, you know, this past year, uh, when the Delta and Omicron variants arose, you know, that option wasn't really available even in blue states. Uh, New York still does have a mask mandate and for indoor places. It does have vaccine requirements, uh, especially in New York City. But, you know, you're seeing more and more that your safety is, you know, not really something that you can prioritize because there, the government has grown tired of giving people money to stay home. You know, the government has decided that that was clearly too much of that. We can't do that again. And so they're doing the only alternative, which is sort of wing it and, you know, count the deaths later. Yeah. And they didn't give us money to stay home. They gave us money to they gave um, Fortune 500 companies and anybody else who could uh, run their money through a business account at a bank, uh, hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars to do what with it? Nobody knows because there's no system to actually track that information. Yep. I will tell you right now at my workplace, we were openly told after we were told that benefits would be cut and that we might not be getting any pay increases as inflation uh, goes, inflation, quote unquote, prices rising, goes out of control. We were told that most of the money that my workplace got in that uh, paycheck protection pledge or whatever the hell it was called was just sitting in a vault somewhere sitting in a bank account. And I'm betting that the grand majority of places, that is exactly what they did. They took out the minimal amount that they would need to meet certain obligations, probably not the ones about paying their employees, and then happily went along and did what bosses wanted to do everywhere, which was cut pay, cut benefits, treat their workers worse. What what you have here, the pandemic, and I know we say this every time we talk about this, but it remains true. What the pandemic did was give an opportunity for elements both within the public and the private sectors to ally explicitly against the working class, which I'm defining pretty broadly here, but I think that's correct. If you wanted to be safe from this pandemic, the only way that was going to happen is if you're a boss, is if you're someone who employs other people. You were were safe from it to the level that you were not working for your own living. If you were a store manager or, you know, some kind of like low level leadership type of thing, you probably were exposed to some degree of this. But if you were fortunate enough to have your own office on your own floor and you don't have to speak to anybody, then yeah, you probably got through the last two years just fine. Thank you. And because they don't have to be afraid of getting the virus and dying, and, you know, saying their last words to their family members over a phone held by a nurse, because they will never have to fear that we are where we are. That is what it is. It is that we have a small segment of the population with no fear 
and no need to listen to the rest of us. And they've been able to give, uh, you know, the military and the cops every possible toy, speaking of treats on the man, to make sure that if the rest of us get a little bit too uppity, if we get mouthy about the things that we're not getting and that we deserve for propping all of society up and doing all of the damn work, then they will deploy their tanks and atom and, and bombs and drone strikes on the rest of us. So it's your your choice is either you keep showing up to work and you hope you don't die or a hellfire missile. Those are your choices at this point. After close to two years now of this pandemic in the United States, it's become increasingly obvious that the decisions are not being made with regard for our lives and our safety. They are being made with regards for, you know, the GDP and uh, the unemployment rate in mind much more than the death toll. Um, And that's sadly uh, true of both parties now, because while in the early stages of the pandemic under President Trump, there was a, uh, you know, obviously there was a stark uh, partisan divide about prescriptions for how we should be approaching this pandemic. Um, under Biden, on you know, it's close to a f- full year now he's had an office. You know, blue states have started to look a lot like red states. Uh, you, sporting events are now at full capacity everywhere in this country. You know, California is hosting the Super Bowl in a month. The lockdowns that a lot of people imagine are still going on in uh, cities like New York, like as someone who lives in New York City, they aren't really happening. You know, people wear masks on the subway. And that's about the extent of what I see as far as, you know, any real lockdown going on. You know, I have to show my vaccine if I want to go into very certain settings, not even my own workplace, which uh, is a matter of concern for me, but the the lockdowns were never a thing. I want to be real clear about this. Within a month, well, we were still teaching remotely because mid upper middle class parents were still afraid for their kids. Well, we were still teaching remotely. I had multiple coworkers who were going to you know indoor dining in restaurants and traveling and so on. Okay, like we never actually had a lockdown. We don't know in this country what a lockdown looks like. Because if that had happened, then you would have needed to pay people to stay home. You would have needed to take certain measures that really no administration, not Trump, not Biden, nobody could have walked back. So instead, the choice was made from the get-go. This country's entire response this whole time has been to let it rip. And as you said, Ryan, the loudest people in the room, the honestly, the most infantile people in society which is ironic because I think actual children and teenagers have better views on this stuff. They, they understand the problem a little bit better most of the time, have been allowed to basically uh, uh, have every one of their desires met and still complain like they are suffering. Because what they're actually dealing with is their own little conscience, what's left of it, biting them in the back. And that's what they can't deal with. I think a lot of this has been that, you know, if you had to make, you, you, we were all left without guidance. We were all left unmoored. None of us was really given a choice or, or a way to, you know, here's how you can keep yourself, the people that you care about, and other people safe. We were never given a way to do that. 
So we all had to make our individual decisions because you can't trust the Center for the Defense of Capitalism and you can't trust Fauci and you can't trust either of the last two presidents. You can't trust anybody. So you end up having to make your own choices out of you know what you can piece together. And most of us don't have the time or energy to really keep our BS detector up to uh, up to snuff, okay? So what you end up with is people feeling guilty over every single thing that they do, wondering if this is the risk, if this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. And if they do get COVID, most people still, even though they say they shouldn't, judge you for getting sick. And they especially judge you if you happen to be, I don't know, immunocompromised and you can't get a vaccine, you know? That's the first question they ask, even as they say you shouldn't, you, you should wonder why people are questioning all this stuff. So what you end up with is a unique and complete failure of society. Nobody, for the most part, no one is looking out for the people around them because they don't even know how to start looking out for themselves. And I, I think the defense of the Biden administration's policies that you'll get from ardent Democrats and maybe even some people listening to this show is that, well, at this point, the vaccine is almost primarily harming the people who have chosen not to get a vaccine. And as you rightly noted, there are people with who are immunocompromised and, you know, cannot get the vaccine. But nevertheless, this narrative that we are experiencing, as the Biden administration put it, a pandemic of the unvaccinated uh, persists. Um, there, there needs to be some pushback against the idea that it's just okay to let those people die because they made, you know, they believe the wrong stuff about, you know, vaccines and decided not to get a vaccination. Obviously, here on this show, we believe that you should get vaccinated. You absolutely should. It's shown clear benefits and clear protection towards uh, the virus. And, you know, your outcomes are going to be significantly better if you are vaccinated and get COVID than the alternative. But nevertheless, sort of Democrats have sort of uh, wiped their hands clean of this by saying that anything that happens from here on, that's happening to the bad people. That's happening to the unvaccinated. That's happening elsewhere. We no longer have to worry about controlling this virus's spread. We're going to tell people to get vaccinated, and we're not going to do much more than that as far as addressing the pandemic. And I, I think that sucks. I think that's just, that's not how a society should work. We cannot, you know, say that, you know, people's that people deserve to die because they've made poor decisions. That's like antithetical to the whole idea of having universal health care, if you want that, you know, that people's health care should be a matter of the decisions they make. No, it, it should be something that is treated as a common good, because as we've seen time and time and again throughout this pandemic, you know, health of one person impacts the health of all of us. Uh, as we see with overcrowded hospitals, you know, even if all those people are unvaccinated, you know, what happens if you get in a car accident and need to go to the hospital? You know, it impacts all of us. Yeah, it's it's the presidential version of your boss who tells you wear a mask and stay away from other employees and whatnot, but we're not going to improve ventilation. We're not going to give you paid sick leave. It's It's individualism. <laughs> and the U.S. has always ruled itself by that. Anyone who comes from outside of the U.S. can see it. It's plain as the nose on your face. And the result of that is 
that, again, we are uniquely unable to deal with a threat that we can't shoot. (laughs) And so you end up with everyone choosing their acceptable targets, whether that's the unvaccinated or uh, people with disabilities or, you know, uh, uh, I I don't know, non-white people who get a little bit too loud about what they deserve or immigrants or whatever. You, You demonize. That's what you do in this country. You pick a target and you go after them. You pick your own basket of deplorables because we're in a capitalist country. You have a choice on that. <laughs> who, who gets in that basket? It's, it's like a, you know, a create your own pack at uh, Wegmans. And the result of all of that is that, well, basically it just limits the possible. It makes us all, and you've seen this over the course of this episode, it cannot help but make us all bleaker and grimmer people and i don't think and and i say this from discussions in my own life with people of all sorts of ages and whatnot and political leanings really but it seems like increasingly the division is between those of us who want things to stay the same and those of us who want them to change in some direction and the question is how do you get that direction to be a good one to be one that includes things like universal health care paid sick and family leave that includes things like free education, that includes things like a real safety net, that includes things that make it so that you are not the sum of your, not only your decisions, but other people's, that you do not get hit with the bad things that other people do to you. Because right now in this country, you are the victim of that. You get re-victimized by the system when bad things happen to you. So it's not even moralism, because moralism would at least demand that you account for your own choices and that other people account for for theirs. But that's not how it happens. You simply get hammered with the results of everything bad that you or other people do, as long as you're around for it. And for a lot of us, the frustration and anger over what I think a lot of people correctly see as two lost years, as two years of treading water and spinning our wheels, because no one in power wants anything to change. That is bubbling up. And if it cannot be directed in a good way, if it cannot be put into making society better, all it's going to do is be visited by means of violence upon people who are already vulnerable, who are already being mistreated and abused by the state, by the private sector. That's what's going to happen. It already is happening. It's just going to get worse. And fewer and fewer of us will be left who want to or can do anything about it. So we really are at a crossroads here. And I personally am getting very afraid that the the, the willing incompetence of the Biden administration, the evil and cruelty of the Supreme Court and of Congress in this country and of so many state governments is going to make that impossible. It doesn't have to be. Everything you said could have led to a sort of dark note on which to end this episode, but for those last four words, it doesn't have to be. Uh, we can make better choices. We can... Uh, those are five words. It doesn't have... Oh. Okay. Well, uh, for this week, uh, I'm Ryan. <laughs> I'm Lou. <laughs> I was Noah. This was not counting out. This was punching out.
You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.